Mr. Hughes. Mr. Boyce. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Are you uh, recovering from all that butter in France? You know, I ate pastries the first two days, and it, it knocked me out so bad that I just ate meat the rest of the time, oh, basically. There you go. The paleo yeah. diet. Yeah. Uh, what brought you out there? For school? Or? Just No, just going on vacation with my girlfriend. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sweet. Did you guys uh, affix a lock to a bridge? No, we did. We saw those, but it was too cliched. We're we're um, <laughs> we're much cooler than that. So, oh well, that's that's nice to know. That'll that'll yeah. set the precedent for this discussion. This. Yeah, right. So, Mr. Coleman Hughes. Yes, I came across your existence by reading a Quillette article mm -hmm. you posted, and uh, I, I'm interested in in hearing your thoughts, kind of on the political situation right now, and what you think about. I guess what we can kind of call progressivism and mm -hmm. um and maybe whatever the the other side of that is or even like where you are if you even line up on a political spectrum and uh just hear your ideas and hear you flesh out what you see going on either in academia or the media or wherever politically i i used to be a fairly hardcore progressive and i grew up in a very progressive place you almost couldn't imagine a town more progressive and a high school more progressive than I went to. And I used to be very much the type of person that was attracted to the kind of ideas I was criticizing in my Quillette pieces. I used to be the kind of person who would language police white people for various infractions as I viewed them. And over time I've been argued out of many of those dispositions. Hmm. Um, and I, get, I don't know how I would identify now. I'm, uh, if there were such a thing as a center, I would say I was a centrist, but I'm not sure that that is um, a thing that exists. So, uh, you know, I just I want to be a person who is in touch with facts on any given issue. And if that puts me on the right on some issues, then that's fine. If it puts me on the left on others, then I'm fine with that, too. But, yeah, I do think there's a problem with progressivism. I think... Uh, it, the term identity politics more or less captures it. Um, and obviously that's, that's been talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what I was pointing to in, uh, in that Colette piece. Yeah. And so you said that you were argued out of your positions mm -hmm. and do you, do you experience, can you recall like that there was a, uh, resistance to that argument or what was it like to be, to, change was it dramatic oh, yeah. for you or just very gradual or? it was gradual but there was also resistance emotional resistance for sure uh, no nobody really likes their cherished beliefs to be challenged and i i had certain cherished beliefs around the state of race in america what okay. what our goal should be with regard to reducing racism how much racism there was and these beliefs weren't being challenged by my immediate environment, but they were being challenged in terms of podcasts I was listening to, things I was reading on the internet, and um, the occasional person I would meet. So yeah, there's a, there's emotional resistance there, for sure. Um, but no, it wasn't all at once. It was just gradually being talked out of one opinion, realizing the progressive worldview can be wrong and then and then it can open the floodgate once you admit that the views that you were raised with can can be errant then it just one after another you can knock these things down like like bowling pins you can realize that half of the things you were raised to believe are either straight up lies or you know skewed versions of the truth or not the whole picture and then um, the whole house of cards can come tumbling down. Hmm. Have you felt, was there a moment where you felt like you didn't have grounding or that everything was kind of crashing down at once? Or do you feel like you had, you were stable through this transition? I think ultimately you should probably divorce your individual identity and sense of meaning from politics and hmm. whatever specific beliefs you hold. It's very dangerous 
when you you cling so much to specific beliefs that if you let go of them, you would be forced to pay such a huge psychological cost that you're never going to let go of them. Hmm. Um, that's easier said than done, obviously, but yeah. Hmm. And yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I've thought a lot about belief and I mean, there's what people believe there's belief structures and we can call them, well, you know, anything from a religion to an ideology or political, uh, constellation of values but then there's the the act of believing and the relationship that one has to what they believe in and i'm still trying to figure out how what is the role of belief in an adult's life and mm -hmm. especially in such a complex environment as we live in where there's all these different value sets and all these different ethnicities and cultures and and different you know even clubs and how do you navigate through a very almost relativistic uh, region or space and still have some sort of grounding or certainty in what you believe or even just integrity and in how you go about interacting with something that's different or mm -hmm. incorporating that difference into you? Yeah. So what are, are you, is it, am I right in thinking you, you're coming from Evergreen? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Here we go. Okay. So you were there for that whole meltdown. Yeah. Yeah. So that that environment that was maybe surprising to many people who read about that story is totally unsurprising to me. Hmm. That I was very much raised in the kind of high school where the kind of rhetoric that Evergreen students threw at Brett Weinstein was thrown around and I was a true believer really so the the kinds of kids who were calling him a white supremacist that's the social clique that I was in hmm. and it's true what you say that we're navigating this landscape trying to find a belief system that makes sense and I can remember as a kid there was there was essentially one belief system on offer to me which was you could loosely call it progressivism, far leftism, whatever you want to call it. That was the belief system that was on the menu. And so I, I, I was, I mean, I, I was and am the type of person who has strong convictions. So I latched onto it. There was no religion, really. There was no hmm. centrist or right wing alternative. And uh, so, so I never heard the debate on, on many of these issues. And so I, I would have been the kind of kid who was in that evergreen crowd, in a sense. And so looking at how they behaved, it wasn't surprising. But do you have any thoughts on why? Um, I guess if you want to talk about something specific, why is the accusation of white supremacy so easily bandied about? Mm. Multiple reasons. I think... One thing is put put your put yourself in the shoes of an 18-year-old who doesn't really know any very much about the world reasonably smart but not super smart you get to college and you're told that basically uh there's this manichaean view of the world call it intersectionality white cis male had had um hierarchy you're sold this narrative and say you're a black person or, or you're a woman or you're gay. Hmm. You're basically told that here's, here's this way that you can achieve massive social power. You, you can, you can be cool. You can be respected actually that that's really, you can be respected so long as you fight for this particular ideology and you don't have to do that much research. You don't really have to work for it. There isn't a cost associated with this but it's incredibly, incredibly socially rewarding. How could you not fall into that? I mean, it's so attractive. It's it's like a superpower to have to be in one of these identity groups and to be sold this narrative that that you you basically have this social superpower that you can use that you didn't earn. So it is in that sense analogous to a superpower. It's 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 like mm. if you're if you like, would you ask why 
uh, like a 14 year old boy who had x-ray vision would use it to like look in the girl's locker room no it's just like a low cost extremely beneficial thing that you have that you can use do you think there's any way to i so it's there's no cost in it until there's a huge public backlash and one of the phenomena at evergreen and i'm sure it replicates up elsewhere is that those who ended up criticizing that are all lumped into again white supremacy or alt-right or any diminutive version of that like there was this protest that happened well no it wasn't even pro it was there was a rally that happened two weeks after the protests where mm -hmm. this group called patriot prayer which is basically kind of libertarian maybe trump supporters and they're headed by a half Japanese man and, and a Samoan man, but they were automatically called white supremacist. It doesn't even make sense. So there's no cost in believing this until there's a public backlash, but then baked into this system is that you can disregard any sort of, any sort of cost, any sort of capital. Mm -hmm. And now Evergreen's experiencing an incredible blow to its finances, and they're mm -hmm. still able somehow to say that there's no cost. Mm-hmm. To this idea. Well, I, I guess it, the cost depends on from whose perspective you're looking at it. If you're the if you're the student, the, your your landscape of costs and and benefits occur in a social context of your dozen or two dozen friends and acquaintances. Yeah. So, if if calling Brett Weinstein a white supremacist and getting all that hate from people you don't know and can disregard on the internet actually increases your social status in the local context of your two dozen friends that's a very that's still a net win for you yeah so it's like they're not thinking about the school yeah. why would they or necessarily their future insofar as they yeah. recorded themselves doing that and plus you can have a great future if you become an articulate conveyor of intersectionality there are plenty of maybe there, there's a market for that um as a writer, as a thinker. So it's it's not even necessarily bad for one's future. Okay. So, <clears throat> I mean, working from a perspective that would conceive of progressivism, especially its radical contingent, as something that's bad for society, how does one dissuade this movement, dissuade the individuals in this movement who are getting a lot of gain out of the movement? I mean, do you kind of try to sell them something better for them or better for society or how, how do you approach that? I think it's as simple as challenging specific beliefs. Okay. I, I can, I can claim personal knowledge of having been essentially de-radicalized hmm. and it, it is, it is, it's analogous to what many former very religious people will tell you about why it, if they do become atheists about how they became atheists the story is often as simple as I had this belief, somebody challenged it with a fact, and I couldn't find the fact that refuted their fact. And, you know, in real time, I didn't give up my beliefs, but, you know, two months later, it stewed. Hmm. And, and just, like I said, one, one bowling pin at a time. Yeah. The whole thing comes down. So it, I wonder or I worry that with the deconstructionist idea that there are no facts basically yeah. there's only power which basically just means feeling or conviction that even the what you just said about one fact you need another fact to defeat the fact and if you can't find it well you have an out say well facts don't matter that yeah. fact is just a power grab so it just seems like there's this whole rhetorical structure that's been brewing for several decades to insulate and cut off people from that. So it's just, it's worrisome, but I, I have hope. I'm an optimist. But Yeah. I'm not so worried about that. I, I totally know what you mean. The, the postmodernist view of truth where there is it's all relative. It's all just my narrative uh, superseding yours. And it, it's all about power at the end of the day. It's not... It's not about objective truth. The problem with that is it's, it's, it's incoherent because 
if you claim that there is no such thing as objective truth, that very sentence itself is claiming to be objective truth. And at the end of the day, people really care about objective truth, even the people who would write a philosophy paper in the postmodernist style. If you went up to a postmodernist and you said, hey, I, I just saw your boyfriend uh, at dinner with some some beautiful woman, did it, and, and the postmodernist tells you, well, I thought I thought he was with his mom for the weekend. In that moment, it will become crystal clear to them, even if they wrote a dissertation thesis on Foucault and Derrida, that there is such a thing as objective truth, and they really, really care about it. So it's like, that can't win. It's too. It's it's such bad philosophy that it okay. can't possibly win. It'll collapse under its own inability to be consistent. Then, mm-hmm. so maybe this is too personal. Um, I'm just thinking about it. Uh, as you've moved away from progressivism, have you felt yourself gravitating towards other systems of belief, or do you find like there's there's room in in your life? for other belief systems or or do you feel that you've grown past the ability to need a belief system Hmm. i don't know that i have a belief system per se i have beliefs Hmm. and i don't know is reason a belief system Hmm. i don't know i i that's a, that's an interesting question. You phrase it that way. Do I have I replaced old belief systems with new ones? Maybe. Maybe it's the case that you can never see the belief system you're operating under, but that's kind of postmodernist, also. Well, I don't really know how to answer that. You can't. You can't exactly put the postmodernist cat in the bag once it gets out there completely. Yeah. There's always yeah. like like I'm saying. We're living in a pluralistic world. There, there is a, there's truth in postmodernism that says that there is a certain amount of relativity between cultures, between individuals, and I think that as long as that's built on top of modernism, that the truth, the very complex truth, the per- pluralism can still be cohesive as long as it's always based on something that's more firmer than that there's there's Mm -hmm. an allowance for interpretations and multiple interpretations and stuff like that yeah well let me answer your question have i gravitated towards other belief systems i think yes i have i'm a philosophy person Mm. i am biased towards consequentialism which for those who are not have not taken a philosophy intro ethics class is the view that things are good insofar as the as as the consequences of those of that action is good and bad insofar as the consequences of that action or event are bad mm-hmm. of course that still leaves all your work ahead of you in determining what specific things are good and bad but that is a general moral framework that i think in terms of you could, and, and that's a belief system that I endorse. Mm-hmm. And how has your perception of race changed in America or in the world? Well, I, I used to I, I used to think that you can't possibly understand human social interaction without really focusing on people's race. So I would. I would have a conversation with someone like you, knowing that you're white, you're a white guy, I'm a black guy. And I would be sort of calibrating the attention that I pay to what you're saying through a filter of knowing that you're white. And if you said something, if you just made a claim that struck me emotionally wrong or didn't accord with some value that I was raised with as a black person, then... I would attribute it to your the, the the fact that you couldn't possibly understand my experience as a black person. And that's the the filter through which I viewed my social life. Hmm. Um that has changed. I no longer I no longer think in those terms. I think if you if you make a claim and it's a claim I agree with or disagree with, I I'll address the claim itself and not the person. I also think that 
racism is not fundamentally the the biggest problem facing black people anymore in this country by any means or by any stretch of the imagination. I think it is a, a mistruth that has been manufactured by fairly unscrupulous academics and has been told to millions of young black people to the detriment of their potential success. Um, that's something I didn't used to believe. I used to think racism in, in the social fabric was a, a big enough problem to focus on to the exclusion of other things. So that's another one I've, I've changed on. You, you mentioned it's not the biggest problem. Do you, do you see a, a bigger problem for kind of like loosely the black American population? Would you yes. say it's more economic or cultural or what do you think? Uh, I think it's more cultural than anything, but I mean, socioeconomics obviously has something to do with it. Black people don't make as much money as white people. There's this wealth gap that you will hear about um, often that is fairly astonishing. Yeah. Um, but even when you control for socioeconomic variables, you, you, you must have seen this study that I referenced in my Quillette piece from maybe two months ago called or, or it was it was reported on in the New York Times under the heading the punishing reach of racism for black boys did you see this I could you refresh the sure it was it was well it was they had this graphic of black boys and, and black girls born uh, separated by socioeconomic level so you have upper middle class black boys middle class black boys lower class black boys and black girls and measuring where they start from and where they end up. And they find that uh, upper middle class black girls end up doing better than white, their white equivalents. In fact, making slightly more money and enrolling in college at higher rates than white men, conditional on parent income. Black boys, however, end up committing crime at the rate of white boys who were born near the poverty line. Hmm. It's like... So, so to, to, to look at that, there are two explanations that are not fundamentally on the table if you're trying to explain that phenomenon. One is racism, because whatever racism there is in society, and, and it's there, it, the black girls are experiencing it the same as the black boys. Not to say there are no differences in how that could manifest, but it'd be a bizarre argument to make that racism is the cause of these disparities, and yet black girls end up doing better than white girls. It makes no sense. The second thing you can't say is that it's all socioeconomics because you have black boys from upper middle class families that end up having these, uh, uh, I mean, just the metrics of the group as a whole end up looking like white boys who are born into poverty. So what's, what's happening between when they're born into wealth and, and when they're 20, 30 years old? I, I, the answer is fairly obvious to me. It's enormously politically incorrect to say so, but it's culture. And it, it, it is the fact that sometime in, in the teen years, many, many black boys get pulled into a kind of social status game where what it means to win is to put on the toughest persona to not do well in school to never back down from challenges to challenges to your position in your local social hierarchy. And it's not to say no white men end up playing this game too. I mean, it's a male, it's a pretty male game to play historically, but many, many more black boys unconditional on parental income end up playing this kind of social status game and it has terrible consequences. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean when I say culture. Yeah. And how do you how do you uh, correct for that? Is do you think it's the media's fault? Do you think it's like a representation fault? Do you think it's just that, well? That's guess. the million. That's the million dollar question. <laughs> I hmm. I mean, my hunch is it has something to do with media, but that can be heard as white people portray black people as X, therefore black people do X. I think, I don't think it's 
that simple anymore. I, I, I mean, I see, I see, I see black people winning Oscars. I see, you know, Donald Glover, Atlanta being that show being a, a million different shows by black people who are doing great things, who are portraying black people in all their complexity. It's not true to say anymore that our biggest problem is the way black people are repre represented in the media. It's, mm -hmm. it's just not true. And, and so what, what, yeah, when I say the media has something to do with it, yeah, maybe it does. I'm, I'm really just speculating at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why, and I don't know how to change it other than to talk about it, but we can't pretend it's not happening. Mm -hmm. Did you see, um, friends of yours or, or that played out in your high school? Yeah, of course. I mean, well, so I mean, the, the study I just mentioned, it took me um, over a month to for it to click that this study could have been done on the town I grew up in. I grew I grew up in a middle and upper middle class town, Montclair, New Jersey, and it's about thirty percent black, maybe sixty more than sixty percent white, and some other minorities sprinkled in there. And we have we have one big high school in the town that has like a few thousand kids, two or more thousand kids, and two hundred of those kids graduate with honors roughly every year, okay. right? And if you just look year after year, there are white boys in that graduate with honors, white girls graduate with honors, Asian boys, Asian girls, black girls, almost no black boys. Hmm. Why? It's not a racist town. Not to say nothing racist ever happens. It's a wealthy suburb of New York. Hmm. It's not racism because then it would affect the black girls. It's not socioeconomics. It's a middle, upper middle class town. It's not the police. The police are incredibly nice there. Hmm. It's but, okay, but but I didn't go to that school. My mom saw that. She she took me out. My sister went to that school. She took me out. She says something's happening here. I'm not going to put my black son there. I don't know what would have happened, but I, I can tell you, I, 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 when I meet some of the, the boys that I went to school through, through the beginning of middle school with, and who they went to that school, I didn't go to that school, I can tell when I meet them now that they were forced to play that game, hmm. this, the social status game that I didn't have to play because I went to a, a private school where the social the, the social status game that that I had to play was more about actually getting good grades, but pretending that you're not trying that hard and being cool in other ways that are like huh. probably more healthy and getting into Ivy leagues and stuff. That was the more the status game, and you play you know teenagers play the status game that yeah, exactly. that is in front of them, and I could I could tell the, those kids became harder. They became they didn't joke as much. They became tougher. Hmm. It 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 goes back to what you're saying about Kant or Kant and uh, the the consequentialism of these different status games and who knows how these status games arise and what how they resonate through time and are passed on from one generation one year to another to another to another let alone how to like subtly modify that um, because in certain status games the outcomes aren't necessarily bad like like having a record might not be that bad it, it might actually show that you've paid your dues in certain manners and stuff and then then well-meaning people try to start to change the gaps as they're called these equity gaps and they're not seeing or they don't want to see the trajectory of how these gaps are formed, which is much more complex than like, let's uh, diminish the value of grades. So everybody has the same grades or let's, let's shuffle around resources to different communities when that doesn't actually help because the, the status is somehow, it, it's somehow a positive to be on the lower end of a spectrum or to, or to not progress in these other metrics. There's another value system. There's another metric entirely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a metric that is unique to, to black, to black people and, and specifically to black boys. I mentioned this in my Colette piece that there's this acting white meme, yeah. like 
people who talk, black people who talk like me are widely seen as having renounced their claim on their own black authentic identity. And that is very salient to, to, to especially to black teenage boys. And I mean, you can't imagine that there's anything analogous to this in the Asian American community. Is there, I mean, I'm, I'm going to get an angry email from the one Asian person who's experienced this, but hmm. is there on mass a problem within the Asian Asian American community where, you know, 14 through 17 year old boys are worried that if they do too well in school, they will have renounced their Asian American identity. Hmm. I highly doubt it, but there is that problem in the black community. And it's also not in the black immigrant community. So if you ask Nigerians and second generation Nigerians and Ghanaians and West Indians, whether they experience this, they're less likely to say they have, they're more likely to have been raised in a house that had a traditional immigrant kind of ethic where it's fairly socially conservative. Mm -hmm. You do your homework and you don't talk back these things. Uh, obviously there, there's psychological costs to that too. Maybe that's not the ideal style of parenting, but in terms of the consequences that produced, it's going to produce kids that do better in school. It's going to produce kids that are less likely to commit crime. It's going to produce kids that are more incentivized to play social status games that gel with a modern 21st century information economy mm -hmm. rather than a, a almost honor culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that claim to authenticity of identity, uh, I see that mirrored in Coates, Tahasi Coates. Uh, Tahasi. Tanahasi goats. Thanks for yeah, yeah. correcting me. Um, and his Atlantic article on Kanye, who said that Kanye is basically betraying his authenticity. Yeah. When in a, in a way, going on what you're just saying now, in a way, uh, Coates is renouncing his authenticity because he wears a suit and he writes for the Atlantic. Or does it not? It's complicated. It's complicated. Yeah. You, you, you've completely put your finger on, on this phenomenon. The fact that that, that he, he accused Kanye of, if I remember, dying for a quote, white kind of freedom. That, the fact that that is even a, a legitimate thing to say, the fact that he knows that his black intellectual, intellectually minded audience will see that and just lap it up huh. that 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 speaks to the fact that there is this black authenticity heuristic whatever you want to call it yeah, hmm. yeah. and i mean the, the the fact that that's acceptable should should be baffling to people um but but here's the thing is that tanahasi codes okay well there's two things one is that kanye would generally be seen as the picture of authentic blackness, which is what makes his defection from the left so dangerous because he's a rapper. You can tell he's black the moment he talks. He's never been shy about being black. He said George Bush just doesn't care about black people. So he, he's checked off every box of authentic blackness that exists. He's a hero for black people. And then when he says, listen, I'm not down with liberalism, and some other ignorant stuff about slavery. But generally, I, I, I'm not down with this. I like Trump. That is so dangerous. Because what it does is it separates the idea that you can be authentically black from the idea that you have to be progressive, Democrat. Usually those are, those are combined. Hmm. So basically what Kanye is, is he's living proof of the fact that you can be an authentically black person without obeying the... The, dic the moral dictates of the far left. And so Ta-Nehisi Coates had to slam him down. He, that's his job. His job is to police the borders of authentic blackness, and wow. he did it. Wow. But the thing is, you, 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 I think you're wrong to, 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 to think that Ta-Nehisi Coates, because he wears a suit and works at the Atlantic, isn't authentically black, because he, he is authentically black. Okay. He, in in, in many ways, I, I wasn't. I just want to clarify. I wasn't saying that. I was just wondering if he's open to the accusation right. of 
Right. No, I, I know what you mean. And he's not really open to the accusation of it because he agitates for quote unquote black interests. Hmm. Right. So he, he may put on a suit. He may write for publications controlled by the white man, but he does so with, with the, the, um, with the interests of black people at heart, or he does so in the effort to, well, you know what it is. John McWhorter has put his finger on this in, in a book called authentically black. Oh. What he did is what, what Tanasi Coates does is he constantly reminds white people that their, that their ancestors screwed us over. Yeah. And that is a mark of black authenticity. If you can be the person, it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning of the conversation. If you can be the progressive who says, white people, you've, you've, you've screwed us and you owe us, you're white supremacist, Brett Weinstein, you're, you're evil, basically. Yeah. That is the center of the bullseye when it comes to being an authentically black person. And even I could be viewed as authentically black with the, my vocal affect and my m many aspects of my context is now culturally white. But even I could be viewed as, as culturally black if I just agreed to do that one thing and I would get the warmth of my social community around me. Um, it, it would come with various boons. And hmm. so, so that, that's one nuance, I would say. Uh, that, that's why Ta-Nehisi Coates, he's the picture of authentic okay. blackness. And that, that conditioning is reflected in the in certain a certain aspect of the white community the the liberal elite white community and at evergreen with this phenomenon of the ally and the ally isn't the classical term for the ally the ally isn't somebody where we're going to work on our mutual interests together the ally in this rubric is that person who totes the same line and shows mm. their authenticity by mm. by subs by being subservient i have a mm. lot of footage where constantly the the black protesters are telling the white post protesters what to do get in front go to the back uh do this do that and and they're all obedient so even though they're the the white allies are relinquishing their determinism their volition even their self-respect to a certain extent they're gaining entry into this i guess this authenticating uh mindset by finding mm -hmm. their place in it yeah and and so i just wonder like the the outcomes of that for all the all these people who are involved and mm. and in, in being locked in this reverberating I, it just seems so so narrow-minded that that's the one thing that you you have to be saying this one thing you have to go along with this set of rules like and you, you can't be creative you can't turn the idea around you can't be at all uh plastic with this belief system which is the one of the big dangers i see with it it's so rigid mm -hmm. no yeah you've you've again put your finger on the the, the whole allyship concept it's I guess at the core of that is is the fear that many white people have of being called racist. Um, I think what what happens is that we basically decided in the late '60s that racism was a racist was the worst thing that you could be, and we were right, and that that was that was spot on. It, it really, you know, given Hitler and the Holocaust and slavery and Jim Crow, a racist is really one of the worst things you can be. So we decided that what happens next is that now we have to figure out who the racists are in society so that we can put them way down in the, in the social. <laughs> well, we could, we can, we can just, we can put them way down in the social hierarchy, right? We can make sure they're not at the, at the upper echelons. We can make sure they have no social status but then what happens is that nobody really has the time or the effort to figure out who is in fact racist and who isn't because there are a lot of these opinions like that that will make you seem racist even if you're coming from a totally non anti-racist in fact point of view I mean, you, there's 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 a there's a book 
by a Stanford law professor whose name I'm blanking on at the moment, which, which takes a position critical of affirmative action based only on the fact that it hurts black people, yeah. right? And there's an Atlantic article summarizing the argument. It's, it's quite well supported. And li- literally the only concern is that it actually makes black students worse off. So this is an anti-racist argument. It, it is an argument meant to pursue the goal of racial equality. But it's also an argument against affirmative action, which is very close in people's minds to a far-right argument that would be viewed as unsavory because it's coming out of the wrong people's mouths. So what happens is the time and effort required to actually parse out the difference between a nuanced take on affirmative action and a far-right reflexive rejection of affirmative action is too much time and effort for people. So we use a rule of thumb to figure out who's racist, which is basically, if a lot of black people call you racist, we're going we're gonna to put you in the racist bin. Because we just don't have the time to, no, no time and effort are limited. We can't vet everyone in detail. So the problem with that rule of thumb is you might get it right half the time, but you might get it wrong half the time. It's a very crude rule. Mm-hmm. And then over time, the credibility is lost to the point where someone like me who would have grown up hearing the accusation of racism against someone and immediately believing it reflexively. It's gotten to the point where I hear somebody called a racist and my instinct is to be skeptical. It's like I've heard it abused so many times that if I, if I hear somebody call someone a racist, my, in, my instinct is to disbelieve it until I have evidence that I believe. Mm-hmm. So that's not good. I'm going to challenge you. I don't necessarily believe I'm just going to play the devil's advocate, but if I I wonder at a certain point, if racism is no longer embedded to a certain point, it's maybe it's still there in certain degrees, but once racism is no longer embedded in the structures of a society uh, and the law and you know, in business and so on, does it, should it not necessarily also lose its value or its stigma? Should the, the diminishment of its power and, it, and the meaning of it, shouldn't that be kept in line so that it's, it, it no longer, it's no longer that all that harmful for somebody to generally stereotype a race and say, I'm going to avoid them. I'm not going to go out of my way to avoid them or hate them, but I'm, it, it's still racism, but because it's, it, it's no longer really diminishing that group, it no longer needs to necessarily destroy somebody's life. I'm not saying that I, I'm like that, but yeah, the counter argument to that would be just the fact that if you believe humans have an innate tendency towards tribalism and that race tribes demarked demarcated by race are so those tensions are so easy to to stoke and to flare up at any moment in history i mean people have pointed out to me that before the holocaust germany was by good measure, one of the better places for Jews in Europe, right? I think Thomas Sowell has, a, has an essay on this called Germans in History. The point I think he's trying to drive home in that essay is that racial tensions can be stoked by politicians almost out of nowhere, almost based on no, no objective, re- real grievances, okay. as long as people take the concept of race seriously and I think it makes sense, if, if that is true, it makes sense to have a permanent taboo on racism and racists. But the problem is you have to actually figure out who are the real racists okay. and who are all the racists that aren't actually racists. Yeah. Like that's, that's the issue that we're facing now. The other issue is that right now racism is it's a asymmetrical uh, rubric or judgment where the, the, I'm just going back to Evergreen one of the not the leader of the protest but one of the teachers who was heavily involved in the protest firmly believed that racism is prejudice plus power 
<laughs> which creates and she's a teacher and she had a bunch of power she basically controlled the institution to a certain degree I'm, uh, being low resolution but that asymmetry on who can be called a racist was very pronounced where somebody w from a certain race can use that to diminish somebody else from a certain race and wield it completely without any sort of accountability um, so should not shouldn't racism or uh, be stamped out across the entire culture in order for this multicultural project to forward um, this this definition of this definition of racism as prejudice plus power combined with the premise that black people don't have power which I also don't agree with but this is this is simply it, it is an earnestly held belief amongst many intellectual black people but people have to understand that this is just a social superpower that black people enjoy having it's like the the fact that a racist is the worst thing you can be in society and then now i'm immune to it as if by magic i can i can call other people it and knock them down and i'm like I'm like Super Mario. Once you get the invisibility mush or the invincibility mushroom, and I'm just like, it's it's enormously useful. Yeah. And you have to remember, it's like these people are benefiting from it socially, and uh, I mean, a linguist could argue that language evolves, and you can't say that it's wrong for a word to mean what it means. Yeah. Because language is an emergent phenomenon, and it's not a top-down dictated thing. Fine. We can say that, but we, we should also be honest about the consequences of defining racism out of the potential to be held by black people, which is such, I mean, my question for that is always like, my grandma was a woman of color. I heard her say racist shit all the time about other races. It's like, you don't think black people say shit about Mexicans? Yeah, they do. Of course they do. Hmm. I, I, <laughs> you don't think black people say shit about Jews? A lot of them do. Like, is that not racist? Are you going to say, are you going to say Mexicans have more power than black people? Therefore, black people can't be racist against Mexicans. Fine, you can define words however you want, but uh, I mean that that just seems like such a naked social power grab to me. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm playing the devil's advocate. I feel like this is not the correct question for me to ask, um, but we're just riffing here and. Um, I wonder if the racism in the black community against whites is actually causing that feedback loop of not acting white is actually negatively affecting hmm. what you were talking about. What do you mean? Um, that the, the, the statement that if you act white, if you get good grades, you're acting white, that uh, the authentic being authentically black is in certain respects married to being not this other thing right mm -hmm. being not this other group and i wonder mm -hmm. if if that which is kind of racist you're just saying that white people act like this therefore i i need to act like this because I, i'm not that in order to fit mm -hmm. in this other group which is a form of i think it's more cultural than racial but it's still it's still kind of embedded in this racial kind of rubric and i wonder if one could ask if the racism, the, the, because it's acceptable to be racist against this group causes the, the black population to perpetuate outcomes that are not in their best interest. Because it legitimizes that. Yeah, that's interesting to think of, of racist attitudes towards white people as linked to the acting white phenomenon. I've never thought of those as linked causally. I've always thought of the acting white phenomenon as kind of a, an effect of a kind of tribal cultural ethic that developed in response to slavery and Jim Crow, where no matter what you actually believe or who you actually are, you side with the tribe mm -hmm. and the cultural traits of the tribe. Um, yeah, maybe they're linked in a way. I haven't thought of it that way. So, so I, I just want to... I'm just riffing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
but it is i mean it, it people will say people 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 just take for granted that black people don't have power in society and then conveniently ignore all of the areas in which black people have power i just i just saw part of a debate with uh jordan peterson and michael eric dyson yeah um jordan peterson white michael eric dyson is black the debate was about political correctness michael eric dyson is exactly the type who at at in every 30 seconds he will remind white people about slavery and jim crow as if they haven't learned about it and he will say things glibly like black people don't have power in the society therefore x y and z how do you feel if you were in a society in which you didn't have power and then the next thing he'll say he said something he called jordan peterson a mean mad white man right he just called him a mean mad white man as if his race was relevant to his uh to his arguments do you think jordan peterson could could have called him in an auditorium of like 500 or a thousand people or whatever you're just a mean mad black man you're just a mean black that's what you are he couldn't say that hmm. he could not say that but but michael michael eric dyson will be in totally great standing with the progressive community and with the black community hmm. for basically accusing white people of being white and he doesn't and he'll at the same time say black people don't have a social power of course we have a social power we have the social power to call white people basically whatever they want and remain in good standing and not have our social status lowered and in fact have it raised. Yeah. yeah that is power. That is an yeah. absolutely a type of power. And it's the because, power that it's the power yeah. that the evergreen people are exercising over the white ally so when they're literally telling them move here, move your physical body here and obey. How is that not power? That's the definition of power. Yeah, it's the most explicit form of power, the most yeah. direct and obvious. I, d I, I had something to push at, but we know that human beings are essentially self-interested and we have to go through a lot of acculturation and maturation to orchestrate, orchestrate our selfishness in such a way that it benefits more and more people. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and the problem that I see with progressivism or identity politics, or maybe even intersectionality or that, that whole, that whole set of phenomena is that ostensibly on the outside, it, it's all about equality. It's all about goodness. It's all about this great time that we're going to go to eventually, but every single one of the maneuvers that it comes up with are so open to being abused. And so open to one to being abused to oppress people or hold power over people, and at the same time excuse the person who's being oppressive of any sort of accountability. It's like it's built into the system somehow. It's such a dangerous network of ideas that there's no accountability and there's infinite power. Like you say, it's a superpower. And mm -hmm. and and we're talking about race right now, but you can put that on to any other of the minority groups and and therefore it incentivizes you to achieve minority status and to maintain your minority status so yeah. to achieve somehow being not prosperous gives you all this power and then to maintain not being prosperous allows you to maintain that power and i think right. that the only way that that can sustain itself is in a country that's already has all this wealth because it can, it doesn't generate any wealth. It just eats through the wealth. So eventually it's going to have a net negative effect because it, it can only sustain, like with this equity and diversity stuff in colleges, it's costing colleges millions and millions of dollars while they're cutting all these academic programs. And the college can only afford to put all this energy into equity and diversity at the cost of what's actually bringing students there. Right. So yeah. it's diminishing the, the value of the institution. Yeah, you raised several good points there. One, I, I just read that in Singapore, they instituted some policy where uh, the po the politicians, their their salary was pegged to the national GDP. Okay. So if the, if the GDP well, went down, their salary went down. Something <laughs> like this. I, I want to do that with college diversity offer, uh, officers where huh. the the gpa of minority students at the oh. school are pegged to your salary so That's it's no nice. longer it's <laughs> it's no longer an abstract question of how many black faces you can bring into the school it's like wow 
are they ready for this school or are you just are you are you scraping from the bottom of the barrel so to speak to make your school look like it's less racist or whatever like are you actually ensuring that they're meant to be there and that they're doing well and anyway but th- then you also raise the point that That's brilliant that it, this this intersectionality framework incentivizes you to not necessarily become the most competent. It's like, yeah, like if I, if I can, if I can shut your argument down and get the warm glow of affection from my peers as a black guy by basically just reminding you of Jim Crow and slavery and saying, telling you that your opinion is racist. Like if, if I did that to you right now, that would require no competence on my part or very little let's say and it, the reward would be huge so what what effect that has is like i could just go to college and get i don't know maybe i went in to get an engineering degree and i think richard sanders is the name of the guy who wrote the affirmative action book i mentioned earlier he he marshals a bunch of evidence to so to show that black students are going into colleges that they wouldn't have gotten into if not for affirmative action intending to get engineering degrees but now they're in a college that's a little above their preparedness level so they switch to an english degree because it's less rigorous let's say i i switch to like an african-american studies degree or whatever not to say that that degree is easy all of these degrees are hard in in a sense depending on where you are but but now, instead of becoming a highly competent engineer who contributes a lot to society, now I'm, you know, I'm basically my job is like yelling at white people about white supremacy. Doesn't require as much competence. Doesn't contribute as as much wealth to society mm-hmm. as becoming an engineer would have, or like a computer scientist or whatever. Which is slightly ironic because here I am just like yelling at a computer screen. Am I contributing wealth to society now? Maybe not necessarily. Maybe I'm vulnerable to my own uh, my own charge here. Yeah, but take, yeah. you, you see, you see what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That tying tying diversity and equity officers to the GPA that is brilliant. <laughs> I mean, and and the thing is, is that like at Evergreen, like they want to change these numbers, right? But they don't have the comp the the people who want to change the numbers, these gaps, don't have the competency to actually go back and look at why those gaps are occurring and then actually do the really hard work one-on-one with every individual student to help them write, help them compute, right? And what what we see at Evergreen is that the the writing center itself that's supposed to help you get a better grip on how the English language works is doing away with all standards because they don't want to diminish your cultural heritage by causing you to write correct grammar, which leads to these students going through these programs, not being able to write good grammar, trying to submit all these applications and being thrown away right away. Well, this guy can't even do basic grammar. So, so they're actually, they're helping you in the short, they're helping these people in the short term, but totally screwing them in the long term and, and then changing their numbers as a result to have this veneer of equity, but in, in the true outcomes or anything, but right. Sometimes I I really want to ask, I I really do recommend people read that Atlantic article. The book is called mismatch. Okay. I I really recommend this. Richard Sanders. I believe his name is yeah Richard Sanders. Uh, I, I really want to ask people this: How many? I mean, he, he marshals he marshals all this evidence showing that fewer black kids graduate when they're placed into academic environments in which it's hard for them to compete, which makes perfect sense. It's like if you if you were going to do really well at a second tier college, and affirmative action put you in a first tier college that you're unprepared for based on your SAT scores and your preparedness in general, you're, you might drown. You have a higher likelihood of drowning. And he marshals all this evidence that this phenomenon of mismatch is real. And that when, for example, when affirmative action was gutted overnight in the mid nineties in California, the, uh, the, the, the rate of, of college graduation among black kids went up. Mm. Um, so I want to, I mean, I want to ask these people, how many, what is the number of black graduates that you are willing to sacrifice in the name of these policies yeah. that 
want to get a perfect U.S. Census demographic uh, layout of results on every possible metric while ignoring the very complex reasons why these unequal outcomes arise in the first place. Well, you're not addressing the underlying phenomenon. You're just, it's cosmetic progress. And I want, I want to ask these people to come up with a number. Is 300 black kids graduating per year? Is that, are you comfortable with that? 500, a thousand? Seriously, give me a specific number because that, that is what these things do. How many ki- how many black kids are you comfortable with sending a job application with poor grammar because you were too culturally sensitive to teach them that in the year 2018, I'm sorry, like we live in a cultural context that you can't change with the snap of a finger and this is the language that's spoken and this is how, this is the language you have to speak in order to do well here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it's not fair from the point of view of the universe, but I'm sorry, you have to be practical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you okay? Are you comfortable with a hundred kids sending the bad app? A thousand? So is there any these, concern? So many of these policies, like what you just brought up, and, and and a number of other ones, like the 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 power and privilege racism rubrics. Like, okay, if they were really serious about power pres- privilege is racist then we all should have a little card or privilege meter and then as we get more income we we have to get less and less racist right like depending on like give me the actual complexity and and so many of these great sounding ideas they fall apart once you say okay let's do this by the numbers show me mm-hmm. sh- let's 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 calculate the thing like who, yeah. who can speak depending on their historical oppression? Well, let's go through like exactly which ancestors of yours spent yeah. how many years doing <laughs> slavery. And then this is how much you get. And then you don't get any more. Right. But the thing is, if, if you actually I mean, so if you actually did this on on college campuses, you would find, as I think I pointed out in the Colette piece, that some somewhere between 40 percent and two-thirds of black kids at elite college institutions are not descendants of American slavery and Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. They are black, the children of black immigrants from places like Nigeria, Ghana, Jamaica, mm-hmm. other places in the West Indies, Ethiopia, etc. No connection, no ancestral connection to slavery or Jim Crow. And that cohort only makes up about 8% of American black people, and yet they make up around half of, of of college of black college students at the most elite colleges. Mm-hmm. If if you want if you want to predicate the dispensation you're giving to black people in the form of affirmative action and these diversity initiatives, if you want to predicate that dispensation on the fact that our ancestors suffered X, Y, and Z, then it's it's a cold fact that. Half of the peop- half of the black people at these elite colleges have no connection to that. Now, I don't think you should predicate things on historical oppression. It doesn't make sense to me. But if you're going to, at least be consistent with it. Yeah. Also, also not to mention the fact that the, over a hundred thousand Japanese were interned during World, World War II, and and another Princeton study from 2009 found that Asians have to score 450 points higher than black people to have the same odds of being accepted uh, to the most elite colleges. It's like, so you're penalizing them for their historical oppression and they have to score higher than white people too. Tell me how that makes sense. Yeah. It's the logic just, it just, it breaks down and it, you brought up earlier I don't know what thing we were talking about, but you had this face on like anybody who would believe this is just like out to lunch. But like the fact is that these these ideas, once you look at them in a, in one light, they're very absurd. But if you shift your view over to the I'm feeling good or I'm I'm geared towards making the world better, the whole progressive heart heart space rather than the mindset, you know, the heart set, um, it makes sense over there. And, and it just, it's so, it, it's not frustrating or anything like that. It's just, there's this big disparity with all these ideas that are having so much cultural capital right now that don't really stand up. And how are they going to affect, they're, they're affecting our ability to communicate right now in the large sense, but how are they going to affect would, in the future? Yeah. 
yeah, I guess no. I, I'm always hesitant to make predictions about where things are going because, yeah. like, all predictions are wrong except for a very small subset that are right by luck. But one thing which, I would... Which sucks because you believe that consequences are how you're going to evaluate exactly. That's a, that's a very good point, that consequentialists don't take seriously enough. But the one thing I would, I would slightly disagree with there is that hmm. the people who believe th- these these beliefs that me and you are, are uh, pushing back against right now are coming from an emotional place. Okay. I think it's more that they actually haven't heard the arguments against their position articulated by people who seemed safe face to face. So if you if you go to a place, I go to Colombia. If you go to Colombia, you are literally never going to hear basically all of the arguments I've made in the past hour from a friend face to face. It's it's the the chances that you won't hear such arguments are uh, very high. If you do hear such arguments, you'll probably hear them in 140 characters on Twitter from somebody with an egg in 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 a form that is such a a, a weak uh, mockery of itself. Yeah. That you will come to the conclusion that oh that's the whole argument from the other side it's the 140 character egg idiot and you literally won't encounter them on campus you, you you'll go to a class you'll learn that there are no biological gender differences which they teach hmm. in in many classes i've been in the class speaking from experience did you have to Thanks. shave all your facial hair in order to <laughs> get in <laughs> yeah um but it's like it's not it's not necessarily first of all they're very smart so it's not a matter of intellect okay yeah that was second of all i'm also very emotional everyone's emotional so maybe it's probably true that like Mm -hmm. liberal skew towards empathy maybe that's true okay i feel like i've seen studies that say that i'm not gonna say that definitively maybe they're and the big five personality traits, there are differences between liberals and conservatives, for example. But when it comes down to it, it's a matter of a lack of viewpoint diversity in the social context in which these kids at, I mean, the, the evergreen kids were not having late night dorm conversations with people like me who were challenging them in a safe place yeah. off the internet face to face. And if there was a culture of that, evergreen would not have happened. 